What's his name, Don? Hmm? Steve. Take it from you, it is. I'm, I can't tell you how we great. We all share. I mean, yeah. Yes, no, yes, right? we do. So yeah, I'm so grateful. That Bob knows he's not alone with a scrambled memory. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Linda. I, 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 it's actually troubling me. I've, I'm, I'm almost me puts too. me to tears that you do that, because I'm so aware, and the, and it's been a hard month doing these two classes. I I, it's just been exhausting for me, and the more tired I am, the harder it is to hold on to things. So. I'm more than I can tell you. I'm grateful for your prayers. Grateful. I don't know how you're doing it. <clears throat> right. Anybody else? Anybody else? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift. Thank you. What to do with these people? What to do? We get, somebody, somebody please purchase a dunce cap. I'm going to start using it. <laughs> I hope you. I hope you know how much I'd miss you if you weren't. I'm going to start checking the phones at the door. Come on, let's 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 pray. Thank you for the gift of yourself in the mass this morning. Um, so easy to forget that what comes to us in the Eucharist came through a cross. Your body hanging by nails, the weight of them pulling you down, um, um, the torment, um, the asphyxiation, the finally being unable to breathe, and what a horrible death. Um, and we're behind it because of our fall. Strengthen each of us a spirit of gratitude that you did that for us and ask us to share in crosses ourselves. Help us to do that. Hard for us to die, to put ourselves away. Um, help each of us to be strengthened in our efforts to do that, to put away the selfishness that too often drives us in what we do. Ask for a special blessing on Don, his name's. Steve, Steve um, watch over him I'm in this um, period of decay, um, this cancer that's striking at him. Um, heal him, heal him, if it's your will, and hear our will um, that he be healed. Um, if not, um, let him see in his suffering a share in your suffering. What else is there to say? The saints show us this, that um, what an honor it is to be able to participate in your suffering, to be one with you. Help all of us to be more capable of doing that. Watch over him. Um, um, strengthen him in his faith. Let his heart be whole in his faith in you, whatever happens. And let it be a time of preparation too, if he's to leave. Let Mary, most especially, have a quiet heart about it all, uh, to grow in her trust. 
growing our trust in you. Um, and speaking personally, I'm genuinely grateful for Linda's heart, yes, for her own prayer. Um, we're all getting older. <laughs> um, strengthen in all of us a spirit of hope and gratitude for all that life has given to us, all of us. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Can you take out the Shakespeare sonnets? <coughs> We did sign at 94 last time, right? Right. We did not do 116, right? Okay. I'm going to do 94 again because in, in some ways it's such a perfect description of Helena. I'm giving that away. So, um, and um, 116 is one of Shakespeare's most famous love sonnets, and since the All's Well is about love in a particular form, I'm glad to do that one. So let's do those two poems today. Sonnet 94. We've done this already, right? So we've talked about it. They that have the power to hurt. And we talked about the and and but, yes? Yes. Got it. Glad you all have memories. Sonnet 94. <clears throat> They that have the power to hurt and will do none, that do not do the thing they most do show, who moving others are themselves as stone, unmoved, cold, and to temptation slow. They rightly do inherit heaven's graces and husbands, nature's riches from expense. They are the lords and owners of their faces, others but stewards of their excellence. They're genuine. What they give is real. Um, Others are influenced, moved by them. I hope it's clear to everybody that the they, whatever their power, a celloist, a pianist, an opera singer, a great athlete, I hope everybody is including the poet, because in some sense this thing more perfectly describes the poet than I think every other person that I named as an example. They are the lords and owners of their faces, others but stewards of their excellence. The summer's flower is to the summer sweet, but to itself would only live and die. But if that flower with base infection meet, the basis weed outbraves his dignity. For sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds, lilies that fester, smell far worse than weeds. Tomasa, good to see you. There's, there may be some left. It's really good. You want a snack? Okay. Bless her soul. Bless her soul. She's taking care of everybody this morning. Sonnet 116. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admitted pediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark 
whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, the rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickles compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. Look. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. Look at all the knots in there. Love is not, it's not. Love's knots times fool. Love alters not. It's not this. One of the ways of defining something is showing what it's not. But over and over, it's again, it's saying love is whole. It, no matter what happens to the beloved, it does not matter. It does not put these conditions. It's, it remains in it love. Does it mean that it doesn't do anything with the beloved? I don't think so. I mean, it may have to crack the beloved on the head, you know, sometime. Or, but what it does say is, um, it's absolutely constant, no matter what the beloved does. Okay. Um, all's well that ends well. Uh, uh-oh. This one, Doc, it's just... No, I don't. Do you mean... I thought I... Boy, I just get it. Should I check? Don't, because I got this book. I'm good. Here. A couple of things <coughs> before we look at the, at the book. Um, I've already suggested how important it is that we, um, we locate this play in time. This is absolutely crucial um, um, because without seeing this we won't see how really ex- extraordinary the work is, what Shakespeare's done. Shakespeare is aware of um, the Copernican Revolution the scientific revolution is in place. At one point, um, um, I think it's Lefeu is going to say, the age of miracles is past. Miracles are past. Those are his words. Um, miracles are past. Um, all of the physicians, all the medical people have done what they could to try to cure the king, and they failed. Um, so clearly in his mind Shakespeare's setting off a world of science and its claims, what it can do, and is also aware of what it can't do. It's failed to, to provide a cure here. Whenever um, Helena's father is described, he's described in, in having this extraordinary power that almost made it possible for him to transcend nature, to put mortality away. Those are the terms, not mine. It's the play. He had this extraordinary power. He was wiser than other physicians and could do things they couldn't. And that ability was passed on to Helena. You you know that she goes to the king and offers to cure him. He puts her off because he doesn't believe she can do something, but she does cure him. And everybody experiences it as a miracle. Um, So Shakespeare's aware that we've entered a new world. And um, he would have felt the effects I think because of his genius about these things more than other people. 
remember that the that the Copernican revolution um, one of the effects of it was um, to create this um, um, this spirit of skepticism everywhere. It's one of the spirits that dominates the Renaissance. Montaigne, all the great thinkers of that period, because everybody had believed in the Ptolemaic universe for centuries and centuries. That was the model on which the universe was based. When Copernicus showed that the Ptolemaic um, scheme was wrong, that the Earth wasn't at the center of the universe, that the Sun was, and the Earth took its place among the planets, that was a revolutionary moment. Stop and think about this just for a second. Everybody understood that so long as the Earth was at the center, that was a place of death. Remember, all the other planets were associated with life, with the gods, because the planets were excuse me, unchanging, eternal. That's why the ancient world put the gods in each one of those planets. They believed you could know things about them because they dealt with eternal things. But the Earth was a place of death and decay. When the, when the Earth moved off into the planets and became one of the planets itself, with the Sun at the center, suddenly everybody knew that um, things on the Earth were knowable, they were intelligible, you could study them like other things. But at this particular moment, it's a, it's a, it's a radical moment because everybody doubts the authority of things. The Church based part of its structure on the Ptolemaic scheme. When that Ptolemaic scheme gave way, the authority of the king, the authority of the church, everything was in question. It was a time of real serious question. Like every important change in history, when radical changes like this occur, it forces people to go to metaphysical depths. They have to go back and question all assumptions. So it changes their worldview. We get a much deeper sense of man in every one of those historical changes. It happened at Homer's time, it happened at Plato's time, it happened here, it'll happen a couple of centuries later with Darwin and Freud. And every one of those, every one of those periods is a time of great artistic scientific discovery, productivity. It's when the great works of art, the great works of science are produced. It's like this here. Shakespeare is aware of the Copernican Revolution. He had read Machiavelli. And Machiavelli is modern in this sense. What he attempts to do with politics is reduce it to a science. You can get control of it. It can be rationalized, explained. The ends justify the means. Um, the modern view of politics is Machiavellian. We know that. You, 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 can't watch, you can't read a story, you can't watch a movie without seeing that somebody in political power is using somebody else and justifying it for political ends. As a matter of fact, human beings become expendable. You can get rid, if, if human beings are in the way of your end, get rid of them. So, um, so um, he's read Machiavelli. Remember the play is called All's Well That Ends Well. It's not quite the ends justify the means, but it's an echo on it. Um, he knows the, the uh, Protestant reformers he knows Luther, he knows Calvin, um, he knows exactly what's going on, um, um, that with the Reformation came the loss of the sacraments, in a basic way, the sacramental is removed, it just adds to this sense that there are no sacraments, there are no miracles anymore, 
Um, Christianity's been reduced to a kind of rationalized religion. Um, the sacred is gone. So that's the background of this play. Into this world comes a young woman whose, daughter, whose father was a physician who seems to have these heaven-sent gifts. We'll look at some passages and see what's going on with that. Um, a couple of the major themes. Um, when the Countess sends Bertram off, she sends him off knowing that she's sending him to a place of trial. There's a phrase later in the book that, that, that names the, the court like the, um, the sporting court, I think was the term. <coughs> it's where men go to play, where women go to make their fortune with men. Um, where, where sex is played loose with. Um, so it's a place of power and intrigue, things happen. Um, we're going to see some of that here. Um, it's like the city today, um, where it's where you go and partly get lost and can carry on and do things secretly when everybody knows they're going on um, and they're not always good. The theme of virginity and marriage I want to come to in a second. Um, what you can't read this play without um, being shocked in some ways at what children do to their parents. Um, the Countess is um, ready to disown Bertram when she gets the letter from him and discovers what he's done, that he's not going to honor his vow. Um, miracles, things of the past. Okay. This whole question of virginity and, and um, marriage. To try to help sense, make sense of what I think is the most extraordinary thing in this play, and I don't, Shakespeare doesn't, I'm not as aware of his doing anything like this in any other play um, with any other woman. Um, we all know, and we sort of take for granted today, I don't think we give it much thought, that um, um, Mary's birth was a virgin birth, okay? She's a virgin. Um, she was the means of Christ coming into the world. It was a woman. The great glory of woman, I think it's something we've lost in the modern world because we give so much importance to power. Um, woman's great gift is that she's the principle of continuity in a civilization. Parolis is going to make everything of that in the beginning when he says uh, virginity. Pooh. Um, if you hold on to your virginity, life stops. I'll look at the lines and we're going to look at these because it's so important. A woman is the means of creation, of continuity. If we take, if we take um, Mitzermites or uh, Merchant of Venice seriously and some of Chaucer's plays, you know that one of the things that distinguishes women from men is that women are the bearers of a tradition. They carry the past on because they're going to carry it forward. So typically they are teachers. Portia was a teacher. Nerissa, remember at the end they were teaching their husbands. The men were out risking and doing all these stupid things. It's the women who grounded them, who brought them back. It's the same here. Bertram gives up his ring, denounces his past, his heritage. It's um, Portia, I mean uh, Helena, who carries that heritage forward. She keeps it living. And it's only by virtue of her doing that that she has a power in the present. Because where men get so caught up in the world, jobs and money and power, 
that they have less interest in traditions carrying the past forward. And you know that's been a major theme, memoria. Don't forget the past, carry it forward. Helena does that. Um, the interesting thing about Mary as a woman is, it, there's a couple of things. One is, she's the only human being, natural human being, who, perfect, who was perfect in all the graces. Christ was God. Mary was the only human being to have lived who was perfect in all the graces. Remember when we did the Divine Comedy and we looked at the purgatory, if you lined up each one of the sins, pride, envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, lust, if you looked at the virtue answering every one of those sins, Mary was the exemplar in every single one of them. I mean, I, if, I'm trusting you all remember. So for example, what's the, what's the virtue opposite pride? Mary was, everyone, the first virtue was her. What's the virtue opposite envy? Generosity. Hmm? Generosity. Yeah. Generosity, mercy. It would be mercy too. You're in, in, when somebody's envious, they're happy when somebody loses something. Because you don't have it. Mercy means you're sad when somebody loses something. You want, to, you want to see them get it, so you be generous. You can go down the, each one of the sins. You can go back to the scale in the purgatory in the, in the study guide that I gave you. Mary was the exemplar, the very first one of everyone, because in her, every virtue was perfect. Okay? Now, she gave a virgin birth. She, she was the means by which Christ came to us. Take her away, and he does, he's not here. So... She's given an exalted place. She's called the disciple of the disciples. But, it, but the, one of the most important things that I don't think we can forget is that her birth was a virgin birth. She didn't do it for herself. She was obeying God. It was an absolutely selfless act of obedience. She didn't say, I'll do it under these conditions or tell me what reasons or, you know, I want reasons. It's like somebody today asking for a prenuptial contract. I'll do this if... Mary said yes, yes, period. Christ did the same thing with his father, absolutely obedient to the point of death. That's, that's why the Griselda story in some sense is so compelling that it's an example, I mean it's a reminder that when somebody risks obedience to a death in faith, we know that's at the center of our belief, that mystery that God will bring some fruit out of it, some good, okay? So just hold on to that notion of a virgin birth because the, a lot is going to be made of virginity here and marriage both. And we've got to, we've got to see what Shakespeare's doing with those two because they're at the center of the, at the, center of the play. Okay, let's, let's look at the play. Um, I want to just go through some scenes briefly. Look at the book. No, I've got a book, so it's my big one with all my. It's 20 years of notes. Um, we looked at the beginning in which the Countess sends Bertram off 
Um, and I, I, I mentioned the incestuous quality, didn't I? That um, in delivering my son from me, I bury a second husband. You shall find of the king a husband, madam. I, those terms to me suggest, I think they're meant to be suggestive of something incestuous, ingrown. That in the aristocracy, I talked about this, right? That we're in an aristocratic world. And Shakespeare's showing that it's ingrown, which it can't help but be. If you've got a class set apart, um, it's going to be tend to, it's going to tend towards an ingrowing something incestuous. Um, it protects itself. Helen is going to introduce a new principle because she's going to shatter that. Bertram doesn't want to marry Helen because she's beneath him. She's of an inferior class. So we're in a world in which there are these rigid class stratifications that separate people as if by birth they were given something somebody else doesn't. The whole impulse of a democracy is we're all created equal. We are all equal. Um, um, no class interference should prevent us from trying to realize who we are as people. That was the point of the French Revolution and the American Revolution. So Shakespeare's already a cent centuries, two centuries ahead of what's going on. With Helen, you could say she's the prototype of the French Revolution. I really actually believe that. But um, <coughs> she's saying goodbye to her son um, on, in Act 1, Scene 1, about line 75. Lefeu says goodbye. And then Helena says, Oh, were that all, I think not on my father, and these great tears grace his remembrance, more than all those I shed for him. What was he like? I forgot him. She, she, she remembers the grief that she felt for her father. Everybody thinks she's sad because she's lost her father. She's sad, and they don't know it, because Bertram's leaving. And she loves him, in her words, idolatrously. I have forgot him. My imagination carries no favor in it but Bertram's. I am undone. There is no living, none in Bertram being away. Twere all one that I should love a bright particular star and think to wed it. He is so above me. In his bright collateral radiance and collateral light must I be comforted, not in his fear. So she knows to love him is some, in one way preposterous because she could have no hope that they would ever marriage. They're separated by class. What this book is about is the way that love <laughs> can overcome anything socially. That's the nature of it, no matter what it is. Does it mean it will go without burdens? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Must I be comforted, not in his fear? The ambition in my love thus plagues itself. The fact that she loves him is going to put a burden on her. How, on any of us when we love somebody. times when I would like to get a stranglehold on some of my children. <laughs> I don't know if it's a burden to restrain myself or a burden to go ahead with it. <laughs> on, what, on them? We're not talking about them. We're talking about my love of them. <laughs> how, how much I love them. <laughs> Must I be comforted, not in his fear? The ambition in my love thus plagues itself the hind that would be mated by the lion must die for love. But by the way, there's that lamb line um, image that I think we get in Isaiah. Um, Twas pretty though a plague to see him every hour to sit and draw his arched brows, his hawking eye, his curls in our heart's table. 
And you can imagine her as a young lover when he's out of sight, picturing constantly. Heart too capable of every line and trick of his sweet favor, but now he's gone and my idolatrous fancy must sanctify his relics. Notice the religious imagery, because it's going to be consistent in her talk, and I don't think we should overlook it. Okay? One of the interesting things here is that in Helena, we've got a reverse of the chivalric ideal that we've been seeing in Chaucer, in everything in the Middle Ages. Because in all Chaucer stories, it's always the man who's the um, lover of the woman. And you remember that the, the, the notion of courtly love, um, the, the, that tradition, is that the man loves the woman as his liege. He will do everything he can to serve her, even languish and die. We saw that in almost all of Chaucer's stories. In this story, that relationship's reversed. Helena is the lover, and Bertram's the beloved, and she languishes for him. Okay. Now, when Parolis comes in, she's got a sad expression on her face. Um, I'm not exactly sure what makes him say, are you meditating on virginity, but we've got to take a look at this. Line 105. <coughs> um, <coughs> the two play on words. Um, about line 120, Act 1, Scene 1. She wants to know what women can do to protect their virginity because men assault them often. Virginity being blown down, man will quicker be blown up. Mary and blowing him down again with the breach yourselves made you lose your city. It is not politic in the commonwealth of nature to preserve virginity. Loss of virginity is rational increase. There was never virgin got till virginity was first, no woman can be born, or I mean, be a virgin unless she's first born, so her mother had to give up her virginity or she wouldn't be alive. So he's playing with these notions. There's little can be said in it, tis against the rule of nature. Virginity breeds mites, much like a cheese, consumes itself to the very pairing and so dies with feeding on its own stomach. Besides, virginity is peevish, proud, idle, made of self-love, which is the most Inhibited sin in the canon, keep it not. You cannot choose but lose by it. Out with it. Within the year, it will make itself two, which is goodly increase. So, as long as a woman preserves her virginity, life stops. There's no life coming into existence. Once she gives it up, she becomes product productive of life. Um, off with it while, while it is vendable, sellable. Answer the time of request. Virginity, like an old courtier, wears her cap out of fashion, richly suited but unsuitable, just like the brooch and the toothpick, which we're not now. Your date, fig, is better in your pie and your porridge than in your cheek. You know, you're going to grow old. And your virginity, your old virginity, is like one of our French withered pears. It looks ill, it eats dryly, merely. Tis a weathered pear. It was formerly better, merry, Yet tis a withered pear. Will you do anything with it? Now just stop before. Characterize Paroli's attitude towards virginity and maybe marriage too, but at least virginity. The sooner it's lost, the better. Huh? The sooner it's lost, the better. Yeah. Characterize him, the spirit of his. Set it next to Mary in her virgin birth. He has all the opposite traits of Mary. 
Name some. Uh, Mary, Mary was had humility. He, he certainly does not. Mm -mm. Uh, Mary has, you know, a strength about her. He, as we will learn later, certainly has not. Yeah, yeah. So he's kind of the anti-Mary. Yeah, truly, truly, mm. and anti-marriage. Um, it'll it'll show. Um, before we go any farther, I just want to make this statement because it, it it's going to play out. Parolis is I tried to present this play as being on the verge of modernity. Francis looking back to an old aristocratic world. Helena goes to France where the Renaissance is beginning. I'm sorry to Italy, and when she comes back, she marries Bertram. She breaks down that class barrier. She's bringing something from Italy that France doesn't have. And she's going to make it possible for those um, class divisions to soften, actually break down. Um, <clears throat> Parolis, is a, this is, Parolis is a man of words. He, this is, and, and I, I'm just, I'm reading Othello in this other group. If those of you who remember Othello in that tempting scene when Iago begins to tempt him, Othello goes, thought, thought what? The next two pages, every sixth word is thought, think, thought, think, thought, think. If you go back to that play, because in Venice we're in a world of thought. We're, we're, we're beyond a heroic world where people were measured by their actions. Now we're in a commercial regime where the most important thing is how resourceful you are in imagine, thinking things. And you know how dangerous it is because Iago's going to lead to Othello's death. So in the Venetian world, people are, in the modern world, people are encouraged to live in their heads, in thought. Is that clear? That's one of the major dis fundamental distinctions between the ancient world, Achilles, Odysseus, the medieval chivalric knight, and the modern world with men sitting around at their computers thinking. Thought, thought, thought. And very often the way people engage each other is from one thought to another. I think you think this. In fact, those words are actually repeated in the play. So we're in a world of thought, and that defines Parolis. He's a man of words. He lives at a level of pure words. There's no action. When it comes time for him to act, he's gone. So that's the first thing. Second thing, it, what Shakespeare's doing here is really important, and it's, it's incredible, it's really. Um, I, I've talked about it elsewhere. Shakespeare's used this technique of what we would call doubling. Charles Dickens did it a lot, most modern writers do it. Once man loses a sense of final ends, the way we saw in Dante, that this is where, this is what will end up, this is what will be in hell or heaven, or. Once we lose a, a sense of final ends, we're trapped in the world. The world becomes our be-all, end-all. And once we lose a sense of final ends, we lose a depth of perception. We don't see people against final ends anymore. We see them shallowly in terms of here now. Okay? That means authors, writers, have to have some way of exploring a person of respectability because respectability is all they've got. Is that clear? Take away fine lens, take away the sacred, take away the sacraments. What's left in Melville, in Faulkner? We've seen it again and again. 
The only thing that's left is respectability. It's respectability that's the measure of your Christian faith. If you've got a lot of money, you're saved. If you're in Calvin's world. That's the, that's the fundamentalist world. The mark of your salvation is your prosperity. That shows you how good you are. Melville took that word apart, that world apart. So did Faulkner. Is, is Paralysis sort of the personification of reason run amok? Paralysis? Yeah. 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 But here, yes. Here's the point I wanted to make. Watch what happens to Parolis, because everything that happens to him lines up with what's going on with Bertram. Parolis is not just a character in his own right in the story. He's like a double of Paroli, um, Bertram. He's an image of something Bertram can't see in himself that we're meant to see more clearly. That is, there is in Bertram this awful shallowness. He puts on this poise that he's this good man, he's a, a lord, he's a lord at court. Everybody thinks highly of him. What happens when the king asks him to marry? Gone. Runs away. So it's no accident that, that Parolis and Bertram keep lining up. Parolis is an image of something in Bertram, um, and it's only through him that Shakespeare can explore that quality in Bertram. Shallowness, words, um, that he seems to do something. He lives in a world of thought. You know that he's going he's to run away from his vow. He's going to go to the war. And while he's at the war, as great as he is in war, the, the irony is when, when we see the pair there with Bertram and Parolis at the war, um, we're going to see that Bert, Bertram performed a great act. He was heroic, and the, the, the Florentine people admire him. But as soon as they get through talking, he and this other lord talk about going off to Diana. He's been wooing her, and we know he's going to use her. He's not going to honor his vow. He's going to promise her all these things, and he's even going to give her his, his um, ancient ring. So paroles, which means words. Paroles is an image of something in Bertram. Now part of the value of this, remember, if you put if you thought... Put Othello and All's Well Together and what you see. In the modern world, in the modern world, we live at a level of thought, of words. And we take words as real when they're not so often for people. Right? Iago uses everybody. Everybody. Everybody trusts him. Everybody's manipulated. We are susceptible, susceptible to giving words too much weight and then being deceived by them. We're at a level of thought, so there's this disconnect between words and actions. It's one of the great themes of this play. The one person outside of that, Helena. And it's a woman again. Okay. So if we look at these words of Proly on virginity, they're cynical. He's cynical. Um, the virginity is degraded. There's no value to it. And the life that comes out of it isn't value. I mean, he doesn't value marriage. Everything he does is to degrade things, talk down. He has no, there's no worth in virginity. Now, having said that, put that out there. Take a look at what Helena says. Um, line 160, still Act 1, scene 1. Will you anything with it? What are you going to do with it? It's going to be a withered pear. Die, go, grow old as a virgin? You're just going to 
shrivel up. God. Helen's response, it's one of the most important speeches in the whole of the play. Her response, not my virginity, yet there shall your master have a thousand loves, a mother and a mistress and a friend, a phoenix. Remember the phoenix rose from the ashes and the phoenix was bisexual or neutral. Now hold on, she says, not my virginity, yet there shall your master have a thousand loves, a mother, a mistress, a friend, a phoenix, captain, an enemy, a guide, a goddess, sovereign, a counselor, a traitress, and a deer. His humble ambition, proud humility, his jarring concord, these are all paradoxes, and his discord dulcet, which um, his fate, his sweet disaster, with a world of pretty, fond, adoptious Christendoms that blinking Cupid gossips. All these silly things that are said about women. Now shall he, I know not what he shall, God send him well, the court's a learning place. She knows that when men go to court, all sorts of mischief is going to happen. And he is one, what one in faith, that I wish what, that is she won't finish her thought. What is she saying in this line? It's almost more to herself than to Parolis, but what she's saying. What she's saying. Not my virginity, yet there shall your master have a thousand loves, a mother, a mistress, friend, a phoenix, captain, and enemy, guy, got all of it. Flesh that out, can you? Coming to terms meaning? Well, like resigning herself that this is going to happen, he's going to play, he's going to keep around. No? Okay. Yeah. I, I <laughs> think it means back. that she's willing to, to be his everything, everything. whatever okay. he wants. Yeah. Can you flesh that out at all? Take any of the terms, Beth? Well, the virginity is fine, but there are other aspects of of love. Is a, a mother a comforter? Uh, Captain, enemy, a mistress, everything. Yeah. She's going to be everything to him. And it's born out of a... It, here, I think this is what... It's born out of a... I meant to bring Paul's... Oh, here. Here, I did. Um, this is Paul last week, one of his readings. Beloved, I remind you to stir into flame the gift of God that you have through the imposition of my hand. For God did not give... This is so amazing. God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather of power and love and self-control. Our belief is that if we enter into God's love, we can become whole in that love. It was whole enough in the, in the apostles that they cast out demons, they healed, they healed. What's she going to go on to do? I mean, eventually she's going to... What she's describing here is a wholeness of love that is not contingent upon sex. 
because you know when when couples get married, very often one person wants to have sex and the other one doesn't, or the other one does, or the I mean, that this is not contingent on sex. This is a love born in her virginity that she sees as being realized once she gets married. She will be all things to him. Now, will the play bear that out? Will she accomplish all things? Because you know that when, when she heals the king and he gives her choice of a husband, she's going to ch- pass by on four men and she's going to choose Bertram and Bertram's going to refuse. He, he will not obey he will not obey the king. And finally the king threatens him and he obeys in words. In words. Then writes this letter to the king and to his mother and then runs. And it, it's at that point that Helena has a task. Um, she's got to meet those conditions in the letter. Let's go back to the sonnet. Go what? The, what's happening here with, with love to the sonnet that we just read and also to... Paul's thesis on love. I forget what, I, I, as a reader, I've read it several times, but I just can't remember yeah. what it is. But he goes through this whole love. Oh, is. in Corinthians? Yeah. Love yeah, is not this. Yeah, yeah, right. He yeah. goes through this whole love is. Right. And it, it sounds to me like true love is what it has to be in order to provide to whomever you love what they need and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at this point, just hold on to this, that she, this is in her mind associated with the virginity before any consummation has happened. Not my virginity yet, but there, I'm assuming inner virginity, there shall your master have, because what she's talking about is a wholeness to the love that she has for this man, and out of it will come these things. Um, on, on Act 1, Scene 1, Line 200 to 10, Parolis, after continuing to blast um, virginity, says, Farewell, and thou's leisure, say thy prayers. When thou hast none, remember thy friends, get thee a good husband, and use him as he uses thee. I mean, it's just very cynical. You know, in some ways, very modern. Marriage is a convenience. That's all there is to it. So, farewell. Now, what is she saying here? Because this is another really important speech. Our remedies often ourselves do lie, which we ascribe to heaven. The faded sky gives us free scope, only doth backward pull our slow designs when we ourselves are dull. What power is it which mounts my love so high that makes me see and cannot feed mine eye? The mightiest space in fortune nature brings to join like likes and kiss like native things. Impossible be strange attempts to those that weigh their pains in sense and do suppose what hath been cannot be. Whoever strove to show her merit that did miss her love, the king's disease, my project may deceive me, but my intents are fixed. She's going to go to Paris to heal the king. But what is she saying here? Our remedies off in ourselves do lie which we ascribe to heaven. The faded sky gives us free scope, only doth backward pull our slow designs when we ourselves are dull. What's she saying? We think heaven's going to take care of us, 
what we need to do that's going to fix our illness or whatever is wrong right now. Um, is within ourselves if we do it. It's only when we're reluctant or dull-witted. Faded sky gives us free scope, only doth backward pull our slow designs when we ourselves are dull. Our remedies are in ourselves. And the interesting thing about this play is, you know, I mean, very often you say, let God do it. She's saying the opposite. What she's saying is, we have to do something. The, the, the world has given us free scope, we can do it. We only fall backwards because we don't ask enough of ourselves. What power is it which mounts my love so high that makes me see and cannot feed mine eye? She's aware that she's being drawn to something beyond her that she can't fully see, but she knows it's there. The mightiest space in fortune nature brings to join like light and kiss like native things. She and Bertram are separated even though they're humans. They should not be separated. But nature, the mightiest space in fortune nature brings to... Nature is meant to help bring us together because we all share the same nature. We shouldn't be separated by class division. She and Bertram shouldn't be separated. They have the same nature. So the mighty space and fortune nature brings to join like likes and kiss like native things. It's she and Bertram. Impossible be strange attempts to those that weigh their pains. And if, if we depend just on our senses, if that's what we depend on, and with, and we're not aware that there's something greater going on in our lives, we'll pull ourselves back. Impossible be strange attempts to those that weigh their pains and sense, and do suppose what hath been cannot be. Miracles are of the past, they can't be now. She's saying they can be. So she's setting off, this is an extraordinary act of courage, she's committing herself to to show her merit that whoever strove to show her merit that did miss her love, can she do this if she didn't love? No, absolutely not. She loves this man completely. She's ready to give herself. She's going to go to the king to, with the intents of curium. But all of this is with some sense that there's something more. And obviously the way the play is set up, the physicians who represent the sciences have failed. So Shakespeare is between two worlds right now with this woman. Um, she, the, the, we go to the king and the, um, um, and she's going to offer her services. Before we go there, I want to I take a look at Act 1, Scene 3. We've got to put these two things together to get any sense of this. It's where the clown and the queen are talking about marriage. Scene three. I will now hear what say you of this gentlewoman. Madam, I care that I have had even your content I, I wish might be found in the calendar of my past. He goes on. What does this knave here? Um, she asks about him, and he says, No, madam, tis not so well that I am poor, though many of the rich are damned. But if I may have your ladyship's goodwill to go to the world, Isbel, the woman, and I will do as we may. Wilt thou need be a beggar? I do beg your good will in this case. In what case? Remember, the, the, when we read Shakespeare, the fools are those people who usually say something nobody else will. 
and they can get away with it because the world looks at them as fools. So they tend to speak a truth. The world's too cowardly to speak. Um, I do beg your goodwill. So I, the reason I'm saying that is because some people just dismiss the fools like they're idiots, but they're not. They're crucial for advancing the action. They're adding something that has that's essential to the play. And is well a case in my own. Service is no heritage, and I think I never have the blessing of God till I have an issue in my body, for they say barns are blessings. He wants to have a child. Tell me why they tell me thy reason why they will marry. Now, here's the opposite of virginity. We just got paroles on virginity, right? Now we're getting the clown on marriage. Tell me why thy reason what thy reason why they will marry. My poor body, madam, requires it. I'm driven on by the flesh, and he must needs go that the devil drives. Is all this your worship's reason? Is that the only reason? You're, you're talking about reason going amok. Is this all your worship's reason? Faith, madam. I have other holy reasons such as they are. May the world know them. I have been, madam, a wicked creature, as you and all flesh and blood are. And indeed, I do marry that I may repent. Thy marriage sooner than thy wickedness, that is, he will repent them. If that's his reason for marrying, he's going to eventually repent that. I'm out of friends, madam, and I hope to have friends for my wife's sake. Such friends are my enemies. Nay, such friends are thine enemies. You're shallow, madam, in, in great friends, for the knaves come to do that for me which I am aweary of. Now get the sexual puns here. You already know what he's talking about, right? Knaves come to do that for me which I am aweary of. Sue, shaking your come on, what? Well, when he gets tired, he'll pimp his wife out. Get tired of what? Set. Set to it, okay. He that ears my land spares my team and gives me leave to the crop. If it I be his cuckold, he's my drudge. That is, he's, even if he's cuckold, this guy is having sex with his wife, he's actually serving the fool. He's a servant of the fool. He that comforts my wife is the cherisher of my flesh and blood. He, notice the logic, the use of reason here, because it's absolutely syllogistic. He that comforts my wife is the cherisher of my flesh and blood. He that cherishes my flesh and blood loves my flesh and blood. He that loves my flesh and blood is my friend. Ergo, therefore, he that kisses my wife is my friend. <laughs> if men could be contented to be what they are, there would be no fear in marriages for young Charbon, the Puritan, and old, that is the, the fundamentalist and the, and the Catholic, the Papist. Howsoever their hearts are severed in religion, their heads are both one. They may jowl horns together like any deer in the herd. They'll have sex. What's the fool, the, clap, the fool's attitude towards marriage? Not worth much. Right. What is it worth? Why does he get married? Sex. Friends. And, and friends and just, it's what you do when he wants children. Right. Because if he doesn't get married, what's going to happen? He's going to be one of the friends. And? Right. Yeah. Okay. Is everybody okay? This is really important. So what are the two extremes that the play presents us with right now with respect to this question of virginity and marriage? Power. Hmm? Power. Sorry? Power. Explain that. Well, if he, if he gets married himself, he can have his own kingdom or build up his own resources and will be under his power versus being quote, a serf as a friend or a <coughs> to someone else who has a household. Remember he says, 
Um, he's glad to have some man cuckold him, knowing that that man will be his drudge. Right. Um, so he's he's as cynical as um, Parolis. Parolis is very cynical about virginity and marriage, and the clown is very cynical that it, there's there's no value it, it's going to spare his flesh because he knows if he doesn't get married he's going to be plain loose and who knows what's going to happen to him then and he doesn't mind the idea of being cuckolded because his attitude is if somebody cuckolds me it's actually doing my job for me so neither the clown's kind of pointing out the, the flaw of absolute reason yeah because in essence you can if you use reason and nothing else you can justify virtually anything. anything. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, the, it's the woman of bath. Yeah. And it's also uh, Iago, who, who shifts his motives. He, he'll find a reason for everything, whatever he's doing. He so, won't so lack for a reason. This whole play is about making the transition from the old world to the new. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And Helena is Shakespeare's hero and helping people figure out how to make that transition. Yeah, not just figuring out, because this is not a world of knowledge. Simply, it's, it's a world of action, of doing things in virtue. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a world, for the most part, that lives at the level of knowledge, of thinking, of ideas, of words, except for this extraordinary creature. So we've got two extremes with respect to this question of virginity and marriage. And just keep in mind this thing, Mary's virgin birth, that she had this wholeness, this trust in God, that she didn't have all these reasons, that she had to offer herself, and out of that came Christ. So there's this absolute trust in God. Um, When you read Othello, just because I'm doing it, I'm just shocked to watch the way Iago plays on people's minds. The, the way he uses thought to manipulate people. Everybody's manipulable. They, he, he plays to whatever they want and he uses them all. And, he, and Shakespeare's showing that's the modern commercial regime. Um, people want to get ahead. Um, they're doing all these things that they think are right. Iago's feeding them, manipulating them, and every one of them is led to some... And underneath this is Portia answering there in, in Merchant and Othello, and here Helen in this play. Um, let's go to the court. She comes to the king. Um, act two, scene. Um, she comes to the court. Um, and offers to cure him, he puts her off dismissively. He's had all these physicians try and fail. Um, and she is persistent in, in answering him each time he has an answer. Act 2, line 1, or scene 1, line 125. My duty then shall pay me for my pains. I will no more enforce mine office on you, humbly entreating from your royal thoughts a modest one to bear me back again. I cannot give thee less, the king says, to be called grateful. Thou thoughtest to help me in such thanks I give, as one near death to those that wish him live. But what at full I know thou art 
thou knowest, thou knowest no part, I knowing all my peril, thou no art. He knows, <laughs> he thinks. Um, she doesn't have the art to do it. What I can do, what I can do can do no hurt to try, since you set up your rest against remedy. He that of greatest works is finisher oft does them by the weakest minister. Remember, Christ chose the weakest people not to live in a world of thought. He was asking them to go out into the world and act. And they did. They were finishers. He that of the greatest works is finisher, oft does them by the weakest minister. So holy ridden babes hath judgment shown when judges have been babes. Great floods have flown from simple sources and great seas have tried when miracles have by the greatest been denied. Oft expectation fails and most oft there where most it promises. And oft it hits where hope is coldest and despair most fits. She says where you least expect to find it, it often happens there. Um, where you sometimes greatest expectations, they may let you down. I must not hear, it's like she's becoming persuasive and he says, get away. I must not hear thee, fare thee well, kind maid, thy pains not used must by thyself be paid. Proffers not took reap thanks for their reward. Now hold on to her words. Inspired merit so by breath is barred. It's not so with him that all things knows as tis with us that square our guest by shows. But most of it is presumption in us when the help of heaven we count the act of men. Remember now, she's just said, it's by our own, our, our remedies do, do, do up, um, our remedies are, are from us. The, the great problem is too often we don't trust enough to risk ourselves. Now she's saying, um, tis not so with him that all things knows, as tis with us that square our guests by shows. But most it is presumption in us when the help of heaven we count the act of men. Dear sir, to my endeavors give consent of heaven, not me, make an experiment. I'm not an imposter. That proclaim myself against the level of my aim. But know I think, and think I know most sure, my art is not past power, nor you past cure. Art thou so confident? Within what space hopest thou may cure? The greatest grace lending grace, ere twice, that is, before two days, you'll be cured. Upon thy certainty and confidence, what darest thou venture? Remember, um, Merchant of Venice. All the men had to go in, he who hazards me, he who hazards me. Bassanio's message was, he who hazards all he has. He chooses the lead, which means he's willing to risk everything. And Morocco and Aragon weren't. It was on the basis of his risking everything that he gains Portia. And as soon as he gains her, she gives up everything. Remember in the next line, she gives him everything of hers. So both of them have completely surrendered themselves, risked everything for the other. Upon what certainty, upon what certainty and confidence, what darest thou venture? Tax of impudence, a strumpet's boldness, a divulged shame, introduced by odious ballads. That is, she's going to be shamed if she fails. She's going to be mocked by everybody. My maiden's name seared otherwise, no worst of worse, extended with vilest, with vilest torture, let my life be ended. More than all these other things, she's offering her life. Methinks in thee, follow this closely, methinks in thee some blessed spirit doth speak, his powerful sound within an organ weak, 
and what impossibility would slay in common sense, sense saves another way. Thy life is dear for all that, that life can rate, worth name of life in thee hath estimate. Youth, beauty, wisdom, courage, all that happiness and prime can happy call. Thou this to hazard needs must intimate, skill infinite or monstrous desperate. Sweet practicer, thy physic I will try, that ministers thine own death if I die. Um, now, just stop for a second. What's just happened between the two of them? And what's what's stands out about the lines? I think she's whenever you're trying to when you're ever, you're trying to and when you're trying to overcome something that's significant, and if you're looking within yourself to find you know the solution and and it involves taking a risk, then it's kind of a, a key to leadership. You've got to somehow convince that person to take that risk in order to achieve the goal. She's, she's asking him to do that. And she says, I'm not going to ask you something that I'm not willing to do myself. So she basically says, okay, I'm asking you to take a risk on me curing you and I'm willing to risk my life, life in order to encourage you to do it. Yeah. And and to me, that's kind of you know Shakespeare's whole concept here that if you're leaving a world behind that you've known so well, you're moving into a world that much is not known. Mm -hmm. There's a huge risk associated with making that transition, as opposed to just staying in the world you know so well, your your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And you know you're going to have to, in order to achieve what you want, you're going to have to take that risk. Yeah, and the risk is everything too. Remember in that in that first speech of hers that we looked at, that um, not my virginity yet, and then she says, in in that my Lord will find everything. So all of this is born out of a wholeness of love in her that she believes with everything in her will be realized once they're married. That she will be, she'll be, she'll be a phoenix, sexless, rise from the dust, you know, the ashes. She'll be a mistress, a mistress, to say a whore, a mistress, captain, a traitor. She will be everything to him. Um, and then, at this point, she risks everything, uh, her life. So what do you do with... To, sorry. Going back to Plato's cave, mm -hmm. Helena and Portia are among those people that come into the cave and lead people out. Yeah, go out of the cave and then come back to leave, yeah. Right. There's something in... Portia and Belmont, I mean, to put this more... Portia and Belmont obviously learned to be obedient and serve her father because he asked her to, to undergo this great ordeal. She had to have a lot of wisdom and questioning and learning or she couldn't have come to the wisdom that she has and, and then she comes back in to Venice, the cave. And what about the lines here? Sue, sorry. Well, the, uh, no, the other thing that I see in this is this and many of our other examples is when you're willing to do this, when you give up yourself, it wins people over. It, and you're right. I mean, it's a, 
business practice, if you want to put it that way, but, but the faith that you have, or Griselda had, or yeah. give other examples, yeah. is the power that then makes moving Absolutely. And I, I want to go a step farther. It, and, and everybody just stop and think. I mean, re remember occasions in your life when you didn't risk or occasions in your life when you did. If you're really risking, you don't know the answer. In a world of a mental world, you, you, in our world, I, this is so, in our world, we do everything we can to take away uncertainty. Seat belts, car, car seats, insurance policies. We want to back everything up because we don't want to lose things. So whatever we go into, we do it with the idea that we've got to back up. How many people actually risk everything without those backups today. What Shakespeare shows us and what um, Chaucer, I mean the great writers, what certainly Chaucer and Shakespeare is, when you do that, when you risk everything in an act of love, God's there. It's like the faith is complete. He, and we, are, we know he's there anyway. You know what I mean? From Boethius, God's always there. But there, uh, there's something to me, when somebody, have the, think about the apostles healing or casting out demons or whatever the apostles did. When that love was whole, God was present, but that person had to give himself completely. And here Helen is doing it. Anything else about the lines? We've got a, anything else about the lines? Did you not hear anything? Be still. <laughs> what? <laughs> did anybody, anybody pick? Did anybody pick it up? Uh, I think maybe it was Sue that said, but I mean, she she mentions it a couple of times. It's and I've never really thought about it before. But I guess when you're in that state of risking. Um, where you really don't know how it's going to turn out, how it's going to end. I mean, at that point is when you're closest to God. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you you've laid it all out there. I mean, if you've ever if you've ever given yourself over to God completely and entirely, it's it's then because you're basically saying, God, take the wheel. Or We'll do this together, because remember she said it's in our in ourselves, our remedies do lie. No shows when men consent experiment that proclaim myself against the level of my aim, but no but know I think and think I know most sure my art is not past power nor past cure. Within what space hopest thou my cure, the greatest grace lending grace? It goes on. The sun shall bring their fiery coach his diurnal ring, there's twice the murk and occidental damp. Moist Hesperus has quenched her sleep. It goes on and on. Why rhyme right at this point? Shakespeare's writing in blank verse. It, hold on, let me have your... Blank verse means iambic pentameter. It's just five feet per line. Blank verse. And occasionally he'll slip into rhyme. And he never does it without a reason. So why does he do it in this scene between Helena and the king? Because when they get serious, I mean, she's, she's got to a point of risk in her life, and he's reached a point where he's gone past the physicians, and now he's ready to submit to something that, that as at the risk of his own shame. 
because he, it's clear that he's partly afraid of being embarrassed. And when they come to that moment, their words are in rhyme. Why? Encouragement. Encouragement. I think what you said a minute ago, but anybody else had any? If you're, if you're in that moment where you're making that risk and you're opening yourself up, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a special moment, if you will. And, you know, you, you, you could probably use all the encouragement you can get. Right? <laughs> so it, it seems only natural that you go into, you know, a, a grind to, to, to appreciate that moment. Poetry Maybe. indicates an openness to faith. It, it letting, it's letting the supernatural in through, I know I'm putting your words back, but, no, but through, through what you believe is the poet who opens us, takes us from pure reason, opens us to nature, opens us to love, opens us to the right. Yeah. And it, it lets faith act. It's almost like a sacred space. There's something, a, a cult's not the right word, but something sacred, holy. They, they've entered. This is a moment of such self-giving. She's putting, she's, there's an eloquence to the line, a beauty to the line, and the rhymes reinforce it. I think we're meant to feel that the, the formality is liturgical, that we've entered it's almost the Eucharistic moment. Heaven and earth coming together. It is. Yeah, I mean, it really is. I mean, in poetry, you know, in poetry, it's, a, it's an extraordinary moment. And Helen's the instrument. I mean, she's the one acting. Um, um, I, I, we, we're, we're going to stop. Act, act two, scene three. The miracle has been, or the healing has been performed. So Helena is a miracle worker. She's a miracle worker. I'm, you know, I'm going to end our work on All's Well, asking her, is there a Christ figure in the work? And here she's a healer. Act 2, scene 3, it begins, few Saint, they say miracles are past, and we have our philosophical persons to make modern and familiar things supernatural and causeless. Hence it is that we make trifles of terrors ensconcing ourselves into seeming knowledge when we should submit ourselves to an unknown fear. What's he saying? Can anybody paraphrase that? Finally, I'll paraphrase it. You want to go, Doc? He's saying that philosophers take supernatural things and make them familiar because commonplace. Um, and we make trifles out of terror, pretending to know um, when we should be going to face a mystery. Yeah, remember I kept calling this in when we did the Protestant Catholic thing, and uh, what I'm calling. Um, The advent of the sign, the modern world, the Protestant world moved away from miracles. It's, I went back to the Bible. Remember, Christ just did the Beatitudes on the Mount. He did an extra, and the multiplication of the fish, you know, and 
and it's a, it's a prefiguring of the Eucharist, the multiplication of the fish and the bread um, really is a prefiguration of the Eucharist. They come back and the disciples say, show us a sign. <laughs> They've just seen one. Um, and in the Copernican temple, you know, in the Bread of Life discourse before the Passion and the Last Supper, Christ is saying, um, unless you eat of my, I'm the bread of life, unless you eat of my body and drink my blood. Half, half the disciples left, which means they're living in their heads. You know, something too extraordinary was in front of them. It just couldn't make, reason would not make a place for it. So the modern world is, I'm, I've described as an advent of the sign where we tend to rationalize everything. And this is, to me, a perfect expression of what few is saying. Um, they say miracles are past. What he's acknowledging is one has just taken place. Is everybody going to see it for what it is? No, no. Um, it's at this point that, um, I'm going to stop here, that um, turn to, stay in that same act, Act 2, Scene um, 3, about line 25. Um, Lefeu's reading um, something here a sh um, that it's already been publicized. These, you know, the word gets out and the public knows about it. A showing of a heavenly effect in an earthly actor. That's the public announcement in one of the public bulls that it would have, would have been, um, what do you call it when you. Proclaimed. Hmm? Proclaimed. Yeah. What's the. It's, it's, anyway, but proclaimed. That's out. I would have said the very name, a showing of a heavy, heavenly effect on earthly actor. Why your dolphin is not lustier for me, I speak in... The, the king seems younger. This is so amazing. Four. Huh? You four. Yeah, Whenever yeah. You take that rhythm and it, and it works out, yeah. like it did for the king, there's a, a, a euphoria like no yeah. other. Yeah, yeah. Remember this, remember this. When Christ performed his miracles, what he did, um, let me not, to the true minds, admit impediments. What Christ did was take away impediments. He didn't add ears to anybody. He didn't put eyes on anybody. The eyes were there. The ears were there. The healing was there. What he did was remove the impediments. He, he took out of the way whatever was in the way and healed whatever it was. Um, um, so when the king is healed, all these impediments are removed, and it's as if he's restored to vigor. He's recovered his life. T nay, to strange, it's very strange that it is this, and follow this, the, the tedious of it. He's of a most fascinerous spirit that will not acknowledge it to be the, the very hand of heaven. Aye. That is, he didn't want to say it because it sounds preposterous. That's exactly what it was. Fair hand of heaven. I, so I say, in a most weak and, and deep debile minister, that is through this fragile woman, it wasn't, a lot, it wasn't masculine strength, it wasn't masculine power, it was the vessel of a woman. And debile minister, great power, great transcendence, which should indeed give us further use to be made then alone the recovery of the king is to be generally thankful. Now, Helena and arrives. The, the king gives her power to choose a husband, 
go to line 65. She says, I am a simple maid, and therein wealthiest that I protest, I simply am a maid. Please it, your majesty, I have done already. The blushes in my cheeks thus whisper me, We blush that thou shouldst choose, but be refused. Let the white death sit on my cheek forever. We'll never come here again. It's as if she's afraid she's going to be rejected. So she's slightly fearful in this ordeal. Make choice and see who shuns thy power, shuns all his love in me. Now look here. Now, Diane, from thy altar do I fly, and to imperial love that God most high do my sighs string. Now, all of the men throughout the story, Parolles and Bertram, most of them, keep identifying themselves with Mars. You know from the ancient world, he's the god of war. They want, that is, their passions are for war. This cowardly... Pearlies is a coward, but he keeps putting himself under Mars, and so does Bertram. The goddess over Diane is, or over uh, Helen has been Diane, the virgin goddess. If you remember the ancient world, she's the virgin goddess. It's at this moment that she says, "Now, Diane, from thy altar do I fly, and to imperial lo- imperial love that God most high, do my sighs stream." Sir, will you hear my suit? She goes to each one of these men. <laughs> Each one of us is only too willing. I mean, she's beautiful, she's noble, and she offers everything a good wife. And Lefeu keeps thinking they're refusing her. About line 90, these boys are boys of ice. They'll, they'll none have her, he thinks they're all refusing. She's refusing them, she's just going down the line. Sure, they are bastards of the English. <laughs> you can imagine, the, this is Shakespeare's, the English audience listening to that had to roar at hearing those lines. These are all bastards of the English. These English are just cowards, all of them. Um, Helena, I dare not say I take you, but I give me and my service ever whilst I live unto your guiding power. This is the man. It's close to Eche Homi. Behold the man. Why then, young Bertram, take her. She's thy wife. Um, my wife, my liege, I shall beseech your highness in such a business, give me leave to use the... Now, we already know from that, he should be obedient. He's already, he came to court saying, I'm your obedient servant. If he were his obedient servant, he would have done. Thou knowest she has raised me from my sickly bed, he keeps refusing, but follows it, my lord, to bring me down, must answer for your raising. I know her well, she had her breeding at my father's charge, a poor physician's daughter, my wife, disdain rather than, I mean, his words are, to me, it's hard for me to read, they're so shameful, just, he's not only rejecting her, he's insulting the king. Um, This is a peasant, the wife, or the daughter of a peasant beneath him. This is how much Shakespeare's aware. Remember, he comes from an aristocracy. He's lived through what Henry VIII did. England's an aristocracy. It's changing. The middle class is growing, but it's an aristocracy. Um, He's aware of the corruptions of court. That once you have this attitude that you're better than other people, it affects the way you relate to each other. And one of the the corruptions is you have this arrogance that you're you're better than other people. And that's what we see here. The, The king listens to him. There's an exchange back and forth until finally... He, um, he threatens Bertram um, with punishment. It's at that point that um, Bertram concedes, he agrees to marry. They go off and they're married, and then Bertram calls Helena to her and says, go home directly, 
I'll give you my reasons later. He already knows he's planning to go off to Italy to escape the king and his vows. And we learn later um, when he goes to Italy and Helena returns home that he put these conditions on her. That he will never marry, he will never return to, actually I'm going to read, he'll never return to France until she gets his heirloom, this heritage ring, off his finger and conceives a child. And he knows he'll never sleep with her, and he's never going to take that ring off and give it to her. So he sets these impossible conditions on her um, as a way of avoiding his vows. Okay? Let me read one more thing, and then we'll stop. Um, it's that passage where... Um, on act, in Act 3, Scene 2, Helena has returned to Rosillian and the Countess, expecting her husband, Bertram, to meet her there. When she arrives, um, she's met with these notes. Act 3, scene 2, and I'll read this and we'll stop here. Helena comes in, the, 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 the countess has received a note from her son um, telling her that um, he's going to France. Actually, so Act 3, scene 2, about line 55 or so. Look on his letter, madam, here's my passport, and she reads from the letter. When thou canst get this ring upon my finger, which never shall come off, and show me a child begotten of thy body that I am father to, then call me husband. But in such a then I write a never. It'll never happen. Um, so she's facing impossibilities. No, anybody can overcome these things. Um, the Countess, return you thither, I, madam, with the swiftest wing of speed, till I have no wife, I have nothing in France. She's read, I mean, obviously she's crushed and bitter. Find you that there, I, she says. Um, line 80, nothing in France until he have no wife. There's nothing here that is too good for him, but only she and she deserves the Lord that 20 such rude boys might tend upon and call her hourly mistress. This is her son. Who is with him? Servant only and a gentleman, which I have sometimes, it's paroles. Go down. You're welcome, gentlemen. I will entreat you when you see my son, tell him that his sword can never win the honor that he loses, the shame she feels uh, that her son. Moral entreat you, written to bear along, which they say they'll serve her. And then Helen says this, Helena. Till I have no wife, I have nothing in France. Nothing in France until he has no wife, she says. Thou shalt have none, Rosillian. And notice the formality. It's not Bertram, it's Rosillian, the dignity of the, the lines repeated. Thou shalt have none, Rosillian, none in France. Then hast thou all again. Poor Lord, is it I that chased thee from thy country and exposed those tender libs of thine to the event of the non-sparing war? And is it I that drive thee from the sport of court where thou wast shot at with fair eyes to be the mark of smoky muskets? O you leaden messengers that ride upon the violent speed of fire, fly with false aim, move the still piercing air that sings with piercing. 
Do not touch my Lord. Whoever shoots at him, I set him there. I set him there. Whoever charges on his forward breast, I am the caitiff that do hold him to it. And though I kill him not, I am the cause. His death was so affected. Better twere I met the raven lion when he roared with sharp constraints of hunger. Better to be eaten by a lion. Better twere that all the miseries which nature owes were mine. All the miseries of the world were mine at once. Come thou home, Rosillian, whence honor but of danger wins a scar, as off it loses all. I will be gone. My being here is that it holds thee hence. Shall I stay here to do it? No. Although the air of paradise did fan the house and angels office all, I will be gone. Even if it were next to paradise and angels were serving, I will be gone. That pitiful rumor may report my flight to consolate thine ear. Come night and day, for with the dark poor thief I'll steal away. What we know happens at this point is that you know that she sets off as a pilgrim to the shrine of St. James. She's going to do a pilgrimage. So how do we understand Helena here? Mary Jane, how do you see her? You don't even want to know. I think she's stupid for loving this jerk. I think she's feeling... I'm so glad you said that. I want to come back to that. No, I am. Um, so I think she feels guilty for sending him off to war because he could have stayed there and just lived a good life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So. Anybody else? By the way, I'm glad Mary Jane said that. You know, one of the, I mean, this is such a commonplace. You, I, I'm sure, I, I'm guessing most of you had this experience. Roommates, girls, you know, lived together and one of the girls, Suzanne had six or eight roommates. I can't imagine what they said about her her being interested in me. But, but you can imagine girls saying, why do you love that guy? What do you see in him? And you hear that all the time. And by the way, just hold on. Christ didn't come, and, and well, here, Christ didn't come because we deserved it. That's one of the great Christ- things that Christianity brought. So often we fall in love with people because they can give us back what we want. Wealth, attraction, beauty, power. We don't love a person because of what we think, who they, we think they are. Christ had to love us that way. And if that's too abstract, um, who got Dante back to heaven? Beatrice. Dante was damned at the time the heavenly machinery went into action. Don't forget that. He was damned. Did that keep her from loving him and doing all she could to help? One of the things that we're called to do in love is not... Um, remember, here, let me put it differently. When Morocco and Aragon went to woo Portia, Morocco said gold, silver, lead. Um, why, everybody wants gold. That's the most attractive thing. I want what everybody wants. Morocco or Aragon said silver. All people want. I choose silver because that's what I deserve. Both of those men showed they wanted Helena or Portia because of the, the fame that would go to them by having her beauty with them. It's like Paris with Helen. Aragon's was because um, I deserve her. 
we, we talked about that when we went, what kind of husbands would they make? In a Christian love, we're supposed to love somebody because we see the person God made them to be, the imago Christiani, naturally Christiani, the natural, that every soul is made in the image of Christ. Clear, and remember, Portia has a third eye, I mean, Bertram has a third eye. Helena has a third eye. She clearly sees, I mean, it reminds me of Walter. She clearly sees something good in him when we know he's a blackguard. Does that mean she stops loving him? No. Um, the poem that I just read, the, the figures that, you know, the, 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 and it's women. I just, I, I'm becoming so disenchanted with my sex, these, the older I get, the stupid things that men do. I hope you know I include women in that too, because what women do today drives me nuts. Yeah. But but in these plays, you've got these women doing these extraordinary things in love. The men, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit intent. Love is not love, which alteration when it's fine. You know, it looks in tempest. It is um, whose worth is unknown, although his height be taken. There's so little attractive about Bertram. She loves him. The, here, remember, here, I want, before, we're getting ready. In the Platonic world, in the ancient world, the greatest virtue was what? Justice. Getting what we, what's due. Giving what's due to another person. If we're a proud person, how, how easy will it be to satisfy ourselves in what's due to us? And if you look down on somebody, how much easier it is to give less? Christ didn't come to us because... Um, we deserved him. He loved him. We, he loved us when we didn't deserve him. So something in Portia sees, in Helena, sees a goodness in Bertram um, that, that we don't even see. The, the only thing that I know that's redeeming in him towards the end, when he goes into battle, he accomplishes these great things in battle. And immediately afterwards, he goes to Diana to have sex. We know there's something noble in him. We also know that he, he's the product of a corrupt world. The French aristocracy is in decay. So Helena sees something other people don't, and she's constant in that love. Um, so here, it's just at this point, Bertram's left, and there's no other way to describe this passage in my mind than to say she's taken the whole thing on herself. How many women, when men go off to work, have any sense of what men have to do at work? The fights that they have that are, are a part of their lives, their daily lives. It's not physical fights with armor. In a work world, what do men bear? And increasingly, what do women wear, bear going into that world? Helen is aware of all the problems he's going to have to face. How many wives send their husbands off? with any awareness of what a man is going to face at work with all the turmoil and fighting and infighting and competitive, whatever it is that makes up the work world. This, this woman right now has taken everything on herself. Where is it going to go? We'll, we'll finish it next week. Linda, sorry, you've got to... Um, uh, a thought came into how many men know what the wife is going to do. Sorry, I thought I included that one. Here, I did, I did it with the workplace, but, but let me do that. No, that's why I'm saying how many men know it. That's, I, I think that's what I said. But let me turn it around. It's not just how many men know it, women do it. 
How many men whose wives stay at home have any sense of what wives have to put up with at home? No. no. Or what we put up with in the workplace. So, here we've got... At a, least we're not delusional. Like <laughs> here we've got... <laughs> I don't think, I don't think Helen is delusional. Here we've got a woman who has just cured the king, has done something extraordinary, and it, it's had the effect of sending Bertram off. She's going to start this pilgrimage. How is this play going to end? Okay, that's where we'll go next week. Okay. Thank you. Bob, yeah. where we started out.